This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Uh, I'm Wynne Burkle, director of the Rand Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this briefing today. Um, quickly, just for a moment about the program, and each of you should have a, a one page in, pager in front of you about this, but Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Iran itself, uh, they hold the keys to the success and durability, or lack thereof, of any final nuclear deal between Iran and the P5 uh, plus one. So the question is, what exactly are the likely concerns and reactions of two key U.S. partners and the internal power dynamics and motivations of the Iranian government? So understanding these factors and the U.S. options to address them will be critical for policymakers to implement a final nuclear agreement, as well as for broader regional stability in the months and years that follow. Uh, I'll just say a couple words about each of the panelists. You should have their full bios in front of you. Just to introduce them, uh, Ali Reza Nader is a senior international policy analyst at the RAND Corporation, a professor at the Party RAND Graduate School and author of Iran After the Bomb, which came out last year. Dalia Dasake is the director, and I'm sorry, I'm doing this out of order. Uh, Dalia Dasake, who's uh, second from your right, um, is the director of the Center for Middle East Public Policy at RAN and a senior political scientist at the RAN Corporation. She's author of Talking to the Enemy, Track to Diplomacy in the Middle East and South Asia, and Beyond the Handshake, Multilateral Cooperation in the Arab-Israeli Peace Process. Jeffrey Martini is a Middle East analyst at the RAND Corporation. Uh, sorry, I'm not identifying uh, right here, second from your left, um, uh, where he works on political reform in the Arab world with a specific focus on North Africa. Uh, he has published on civil military relations in Egypt, generational divides within the Muslim Brotherhood, changes in the regional security environment, and prospects for democratization following the Arab Spring. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it over um, to my uh, moderator, Lynn Davis. Uh, oh my God, I'm sorry, Lynn, sorry. <laughs> Lynn Davis, our moderator today, and the director of the Washington office. Always a bad idea to forget to introduce her. Um, she's a, she is a senior political scientist at RAND Corporation and serves as RAND's, uh, wa uh, director of RAND's Washington office. From 93 to 97, uh, Davis served as Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security Affairs. Uh, her current research focuses on strategic planning, terrorism, citizen preparedness, and defense strategy, and force structure issues. Um, I just note that um, uh, she was senior study group advisor for the Commission on National Security in the 21st century. She served on the staffs of the Secretary of Defense National Security Council and the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Um, and with that, now let me properly turn it over to Lynn, who will moderate our discussion. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, and let me add my welcome to each and every one of you. Um, we're going to focus on the theme of the days after a nuclear agreement with Iran. And we're not going to judge whether that agreement's going to happen or not, but we think it's time now to start thinking about what might happen. And so that's, that's our theme. And so I want to keep this um, fairly brief on our part. I want to engage you in the discussions. And I will, hopefully now you can hear me a little better. So I'm gonna start by asking uh, Dahlia to focus on Israel. Um, we know that Israel has concerns about the agreement now, so now let's put ourselves on the other side of an agreement and will Israel reject the agreement? Uh, will it try to scuttle the agreement? Will it 
perhaps even think about using military force. Okay, thanks, Lynn, and thanks to all of you for being here on this timely topic. Uh, so focusing on Israel, I think I just want to really um, lay out three main points in this first round. Uh, the first one, in answer to your question, Lynn, you know, um, will they reject a deal or whatnot, I think we can assume that any imaginable final deal will not be welcomed by officially by the Israeli government uh, because any final deal as we assess it and as is indicated in the Geneva interim agreement is likely to leave Iran with some nuclear infrastructure hopefully minimal hopefully it will be rolled back significantly that's what the negotiations are about but in the official Israeli of you, they really do take this zero enrichment um, seriously, zero centrifuges. It's a pretty um, maximal policy. And so I think any likely deal will not be welcomed. That said, I think the reason the official policy is would be concerned about any conceivable final deal is, isn't only because of the zero policy, zero enrichment policy. It's also because, and this is going to, I think, be echoed by when we outline other regional concerns, that concerns in Israel about Iran extend far beyond the nuclear program. And that's a theme you see throughout the region, which is it's not just the direct threat that Israel would worry about in terms of the Iranian nuclear capability if they would ever weaponize. Uh, I don't think too many people in Israel lose sleep at night thinking that Iran would directly attack Israel, and Israel has its own, um, own uh, capabilities. So I think uh, the concern is that the uh, influence, the power that a nuclear capability, even at a threshold level, even if Iran, even if an agreement leaves Iran as we expect it to leave it in some threshold capacity, there'll be a concern about Iran's continued missile development. It's, of course, its relationship with Hezbollah and other terrorist organizations. So that's point number one, is official Israeli policy will not welcome any conceivable deal. Point two, though, and I, I really want to emphasize this, especially to an audience here on the Hill and in American policy circles in general, because it's an issue that's very much discussed in Israel, but is not really brought to the forefront in our own debates, which is there's actually been quite an evolution in Israel in terms of their thinking about these negotiations and about a potential deal they could or could not live with. And granted, most of these discussions happen outside of government, but um, there are people who are questioning, both for tactical and substantive reasons, the official Israeli line of zero, zero, zero. So the arguments go tactically. There was a lot of concern, a lot of criticism of Netanyahu's immediate rejection of the interim deal. And a lot of Israelis were arguing, and these are not just doves, these are really serious security guys in Israel who are, are certainly not interested in capitulating to the Iranians uh, and have real concerns about the Iranian threat. And their argument is, tactically, why did Netanyahu kind of use all the ammunition in rejecting this deal, save it for the big deal, you know, don't do it now. So it was kind of a tactical argument, but also a concern that the rejectionist stance isolates Israel rather than Iran and risk rupturing the relationship with the United States, which is still overwhelmingly the number one priority for Israelis. Uh, so I think, you know, on a tactical
political level, there's pushback in Israel. And on a substantive level, there's pushback as well. There are Israelis. Um, you're seeing statements by the former head of the Israel Atomic Energy Commission, for example, arguing Iran's 10 years away from a weapon, that, you know, why don't we test diplomacy? You get other folks like Amos Yadlin, the head of a, a prestigious Israeli national security think tank, again, no dove, and, you know, arguing publicly, including in American papers, there may be a reasonable deal that Israel could live with. It's not going to like it, but there could be a reasonable deal Israel could live with that would allow some enrichment to, main, to, to, to be in place. It's not clear that's going to be a deal that the P5 plus one is going to negotiate. And that brings me to the last point, which is how will Israel react to a deal it most likely will not like? Now, that will depend, of course, on what the deal's like. We can expect official Israeli policy to say this is a bad deal. There could be unofficial acceptance. And in the little paper that, that actually Jeff Martini and I wrote on this question of how the region will respond, our argument is if there is a, universe, or, or a wide consensus in favor of an agreement and the US views it as it's a national security interest that this deal is a good deal because it rolls back the Iranian nuclear program and really addresses this issue seriously. Um, it's going to be very hard for Israel to take drastic actions, let's say, like a unilateral military strike in that, in that consensus environment. Uh, I think the more likely Israeli position will be reluctant adaptation. Uh, I think they're even going to be concerned about upping covert activities because if there's a wide agreement, they're, again, going to be very concerned about not being singled out. They're going to want to keep the focus on Iran and compliance. So I think the debate's really going to shift to issues of compliance and verification. And the Israelis will be at the forefront of trying to expose Iranian violations, which they fully expect to happen. So we're seeing some movement in that direction already. Even those Israelis who believe there could be a reasonable deal fully expect the Iranians to cheat. And so I think we're going to see a lot of movement in the Israelis, and we may already be seeing it in, in backroom discussions, about the kind of compliance and verification measures that would be necessary for the Israelis to feel more comfortable. They're never going to accept it, never going to be openly accepting of it. And these are, this is a very important point for you all on the Hill, because you'll be a very big part of these discussions about verification and monitoring, monitoring this agreement. So I, I just want to, I'll end with those three main points at the outset and then we can continue in our discussion. Thank you. Thanks. So those are the views from Israel. So Jeff, uh, do you think those will be shared in Saudi Arabia or how does one sort of think about the Saudis' response, to a, response now to an agreement? I do think a lot of those uh, uh, concerns are shared in Riyadh. That is, uh, the concerns uh, that are expressed in Tel Aviv, I think, are expressed in Riyadh very similarly. So uh, let me try to come up with a new angle here. Um, and maybe one way to frame this is to say at the outset, the good news for the United States is even though there's distance on this issue between Tel Aviv and Washington, between Riyadh and Washington, on the best approach for confronting uh, the threat of Iran potentially acquiring nuclear weapons, there is agreement on the overall interest. And that's an important point to move back to. So those three capitals, the US and two very important partners in the region, uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, agree on the overall objective, and that is to uh, prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapons capability. 
Now, the concerns that uh, Dahlia just outlined uh, that are expressed from Tel Aviv, they are very similar to those in Riyadh. Uh, one of the major problems is the United States, I think, uh, partly based on the history, and Lynn, you can talk about this from your uh, prior positions on arms control. You know, we tend to think that we can compartmentalize uh, those issues. So even if we have an adversary like the former Soviet Union during the Cold War or Iran currently, um, we think, you know, we can compartmentalize this one single issue. If there's a whole host of bad behavior we're concerned with, Let's single out this one. And for the United States, the nuclear program is the most concerning. Why there's distance between Washington and Riyadh is the nuclear program is just part of the problem for them, and they don't want to compartmentalize the nuclear pro uh, program from the other bad behavior, and that is what they view as Iran's regional ambitions. And so for Saudi Arabia, I mean, there's the equivalent of proxy wars going on in, in Yemen and Bahrain and Lebanon and Syria. And one of the problems that uh, uh, Saudi Arabia has with the United States is this is just one of the issues on which there, there's, there's distance with Washington right now. Another, of course, is Syria and what they view as our tepid response there. Uh, what they see is really the one opportunity in the Arab Spring to, if, if you want to call it the Arab uprisings, to, to deal a blow to one of Iran's allies, Iran's only state ally in the region. And of course, there's distance between Washington and Riyadh on the issue of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood's role in political transitions. So you have kind of a, a, a fraught relationship. Um, I would say stepping back, just as Dahlia comes to the conclusion that uh, uh, while there's some landmines here to navigate in, in alliance maintenance, if you will, maintaining our alliances with these important partners, at the end of the day, we could see Riyadh kind of stomach, as, as, as one of our colleagues, uh, former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley says, choke down a deal, if you will, despite, despite some problems with it. And let me just close by uh, providing maybe a transition in, in, in a few minutes to the, to the big policy question, which is for me, I encourage you to think about whether the metric for judging the success of this approach is what our allies say about it. Yes, alliance maintenance is one of the things we want to do. Yes, we cannot forget how important Tel Aviv and Riyadh are as partners. But just because Tel Aviv and Riyadh have reservations with this approach doesn't mean it's not the appropriate approach for U.S. interests. And so we're going to be balancing how we can advance U.S. interests while not undermining these important relationships in the region. That's great, Jeff. And I definitely want to come back to that question. So I might actually start with you when I <clears throat> come back around. But let's now move to Iran. And Ali, uh, I think you know the question, there are lots of questions on our mind about Iran. It's behavior now, it's behavior after after an agreement. So let's start with one real question, and that is, do you think they'll comply with an agreement if there is an agreement? And if you have enough time after you try to figure that one out, um, then what's going on inside Iran to sort of affect, after an agreement, their potential policies beyond the agreement itself? On, on the issue of uh, compliance, of course, I don't see it as a matter of trusting the Iranian government. And I think if we just trusted the Iranian government then and left it at that, uh, that would be a foolish decision, of course. 
what the agreement will have, what it will entail, and we can see this already uh, in the Joint Plan of Action, is a very intrusive inspections regime uh, by the International Atomic Energy Agency. And Iran, under the NPT, it's expected to sign the additional protocol. And uh, because Iran has had a secretive program, there are greater expectations that it, even that it would go beyond the additional protocol and give wide access to IAEA inspectors for its declared facilities. And that would allow the international community to make sure Iran is complying with the deal. Now, of course, you can make the argument that Iran could have secret sites, uh, and that's a possibility, but the U.S. intelligence community and our allies have had a good track record of revealing those sites. And so therefore, if there's a very tight inspections regime, I think we could have some confidence that uh, the IEA could do its job. Uh, and in terms of Tehran's interest, there's a reason they've come to the negotiation table, and there's a reason the Rouhani government wants a deal and wants to comply with the deal because the economic costs on Iran and the diplomatic costs have been very high as well. So Tehran has an incentive to sign a deal and to comply with the deal. That doesn't necessarily mean we achieve the ideal of Iran completely scrapping its nuclear program. Uh, the Iranian government has indicated that there are certain red lines and principles that they will not let go of, and that includes being able to enrich uranium and having uh, the research and development capabilities for a civilian nuclear program in the future. Uh, but I think there's a middle ground we can reach and make sure Iran does not produce nuclear weapons in the future. And this is what the negotiations are all about. What was the second part of your so question? I want to take you on the other side of that okay. agreement and talk about how an agreement itself will change or not change Iranian behavior, and particularly the internal dynamics that okay. lead to, uh, to that. So I think whatever Rouhani achieves, even if he achieves a good deal for Iran on paper, he's going to be criticized because the nuclear issue is a very important component of the political battles in Iran. And uh, conservative groups in Iran are particularly worried that a nuclear agreement will empower Rouhani to pursue other cultural and political reforms in Iran, uh, opening up the media, uh, loosening restrictions, uh, loosening cultural restrictions. There's already a lot of debate uh, in Iran on the issue of the hijab. A lot of Iranian women are taking off their head covering, and this is causing a lot of anxiety for the government because they think they're losing control of social restrictions. So even if Rouhani achieves a good deal, I think his opponents will try to limit his ability to enact domestic reforms. And we, we shouldn't consider Rouhani to be a great reformer in the first place. I don't think he necessarily wants to reform the Islamic Republic. Uh, I think he's very different than Mohammad Khatami, who was a reformist president who wanted to make changes. Rouhani is very centrist, and in some ways he's a status quo politician. Uh, so in terms of domestic issues, improvement in human rights, uh, improvement in women's rights, minority rights, release of political prisoners, so far the indications are not great. Um, and I, I think 
even if there's a nuclear deal, Rouhani will face very real limits in terms of what he can uh, achieve domestically. In terms of foreign policy, I think he has more wiggle room. And we've already seen Iran uh, reach out to neighboring countries. Uh, the Amir of Kuwait was just in Iran, a reportedly meeting between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Iranian foreign minister has been invited to Saudi Arabia as well. So relations with the Gulf states are improving slowly uh, with Turkey as well. On Israel, I don't think there will be great changes under Rouhani because it's not really necessarily up to, necessarily up to him. And this includes other issues as well, whether it's uh, Syria uh, or Iranian policies in Iraq, because other groups and power centers like the Revolutionary Guards have a lot of say in Iranian foreign policy. But I think a consensus has formed in Tehran that Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's presidency was uh, very costly for the system, not just the nuclear program, but Iran's foreign policies. And so Rouhani has the support of the top leadership, including the supreme leader, to decrease Iran's regional and international isolation. Uh, on the issue of US-Iran relations, I do believe that Rouhani and his foreign minister do want improved relations with the United States. And there is a big constituency in Iran, not just among the people. I think a lot of Iranians want normal relations with the United States, but even among the political elite for improved relations. Uh, whether the conservative establishment would allow that, I think is very open to question. And uh, the Supreme Leader himself has said that the competition between Iran and the United States is not over. Uh, we are going to sh show some flexibility in our policies to serve our own interests, uh, but don't expect the fundamental relationship to change. So for Rouhani, and he has said this very explicitly, he has said that I'm going to work within the framework of the Islamic Republic. And that's the kind of changes we should expect out of its administration, especially in terms of foreign policy. So I want to draw you into this conversation, but I want to tr you know, make a transition from sort of my folks here who are regional experts to actually thinking about US foreign policies or policies um, uh, across all this sort of set of issues that are, that are out there. So take off your regional hats, put on your advisor hats to the US president or to the Congress, and let's talk just a little bit about what the US should be doing through all this. So, Dalia, I'm going to start with you, and I'm going to say, does U.S. policy really matter to the Israelis? Is there things that we can do to affect their policies, or are they just going to be kind of going their way with respect to their policies towards Iran? Um, it matters a great deal. In fact, it's probably the number one issue in Israel. Recent polling in Israel has, in fact, shown that while the majority of Israelis are really skeptical there'll be a final deal. Something like 77% do not think these negotiations will lead to a real resolution of the nuclear issue. Uh, a similar, an equal number, still views the United States as its most important ally. So what we think and how we act matters a lot in Israel. I would say, yeah, we do. So what should we do? And that's the question. And here it's it's a balancing act, right? Because on the one hand, we absolutely need to assure the Israelis that no one can do it as well as the United States. So we have our traditional assurance packages. Much of that is the ongoing, very robust military to military, political relationship, and so forth. And I would assume we would develop a package that would be even more robust in the aftermath of a final deal with Iran. 
and you know, a lot of that would especially focus on deterrence bolstering mechanisms like missile defense, and and we're already doing that. But there would be, an, I would think, even a a boost in in that kind of assistance. So that's on the one hand. The problem with that is that's just one piece of the equation. So you have two issues. One is for the Israelis, there's a perception in Israel, at least at official levels, and, and broadly held, I think, that there is declining US influence in the region. And so there's going to be a question on how much that's going to assure the Israelis, right? All these robust packages, it will be important, but there'll still be a lot of doubts. So I think the other piece of it is also going to be developing uh, in the final deal mechanisms, and here's where the congressional role will be very important, mechanisms which really make it clear that if there are Iranian violations of this deal, there will be a process by which sanctions will be reinstituted, and there will be the possibility, if Iran violates this agreement, that use of force becomes a viable option again. It's not a viable option as long as Iran is fulfilling its bargain, which is why, in addition to reassuring these is the Israelis and making sure these elements are part of a deal, we also have to make it very clear to the Israelis, as I think Jeff alluded to earlier, that if this deal is in the US national security interest, it should be in Israel's national security interest because it would prevent a nuclear-armed Iran. And therefore, it would be very unwelcome to, to, uh, for us to encounter any Israeli unilateral military acts that are not in coordination with us, uh, for a particularly military strike on Iran, which I think would be very unlikely, as I said, anyway, in, in the event of consensus. Um, but it's a real option still. So I think on the one hand, we'd have to make it very clear that if Iran is fulfilling its end of the bargain, there are actions that we would not welcome and that we should be very clear privately and publicly about that, but that we also understand their concerns and their, their very, very deep mistrust of the Iranians and, and that we need to make sure we don't just talk about our reassurances and how strong a relationship is, but we actually legislate and put it in the deal, what would happen. I just want to end with a final note, though, of caution to you up hill, here on the Hill. What we really want to avoid, though, is legislation that would put members of Congress in the position where you can't be pro-deal and pro-Israel at the same time. That is not a good outcome. And there was a little bit of that going on in the um, legislation that was trying to counter or talk about reinstituting or, or increasing sanctions that would have been a violation of the interim agreement that puts members of Congress who want to see a deal but who are also pro-Israel in a very difficult position. So putting all this other stuff into the legislation, if, legislation, if Hezbollah talks to Israel, if missiles and this and that, it's got to stay focused on Iranian compliance with the nuclear deal and very, very strict strict uh, repercussions for Iran, uh, including renewed sanctions and use of force if there's a violation. But it can't throw everything into the mix, or else you're putting members of Congress into the position of, we either accept this deal or we're not pro-Israel. That would be a bad outcome. Actually, I will take a question. Go ahead. Jody Herman, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, Chairman was the author of the bill that you were uh, just uh, speaking about. I, I appreciate your your comments and your views, and I don't I don't 
in a broad sense, disagree with mm -hmm. you. The Congress is going to have to move legislation that provides oversight and benchmarks with respect to the implementation mm -hmm. uh, of any agreement. The difficulty for those of us who do the drafting is that it just isn't that simple, right? We anticipate right. that there will be breaches, as everybody knows. Everybody anticipates that the Iranians will breach in some form. The difficulty will be we don't anticipate necessarily large breaches. We don't necessarily anticipate right. that they uh, we discover a new uh, centrifuge site or that they suddenly produce five or ten thousand more centrifuges than they were supposed to have, or that they suddenly have amounts of HEU that we didn't know they like. It's not going to be that kind of thing, right? right? It's going to be they didn't allow inspectors in this day when they were supposed to. This camera's battery died and they haven't replaced it. It's going to be these little breaches that can accumulate over a period of time. Very difficult, but that are serious if, right. if you take them all together. Very, very difficult for us to to legislate that. Yeah. Uh, legislate. Listen, I can listen, I can write I can write yeah. something that provides a menu of sanctions that provides for limited imposition of sanctions with respect to small breaches, big sanctions with respect to big breaches. But somebody's got to police it. Somebody's got to declare that these an accumulation of breaches equals equals a large breach. It's really just not that simple. Which goes yeah. to my point, which is it's, it's incredibly crucial that the terms of this agreement be very very tough. Yeah. Right? Any agreement that is not, it can't be ironclad, but is close to it in terms of moving back timelines and having an understanding about PMD mm -hmm. and its most emissive program is going to be undoable up here simply because everybody up here understands that we can't legislate very well what you're discussing. So, yeah, absolutely. So let me just start by saying in the negotiations, clearly that that's the goal, but you know negotiations as well as I do and had some experience in them is that you, you know, you're working through a number of different issues and ambiguities are probably going to be part of this agreement. So you have to think about how it is that with the administration you're going to put together, you know, a, 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 a respective set of roles. That is, their own role is going to be participating day to day in the implementation of this agreement and keeping you and others informed about what's, you know, kind of what's going on. So to do it separately but not together I think would be be a real challenge. But I take your premise that there are lots of things that can't go into the legislation that have to remain sort of separate from it. Yeah, and that's exactly, I mean, your point is well taken. It's exactly what you'll hear in Israel. That's their biggest fear, that they'll be what they view as a bad deal, will say it's a good deal, and there'll be these tiny violations, incremental, that we won't really be able to counter in any significant way. So I do think how the deal is ultimately written. I think my art, my, what I was trying to suggest, though, is we shouldn't predetermine this. We should at least let it be tested, right? We're assuming Iranian violations, but let's see. And we also do, as Ali suggested, have the IAEA, you know, and a part of a deal is going to have intrusive inspections. So it's not like we're the only ones keeping track of this or the Israelis. So I think that's an important point. Um, and, and it is tough, and there is the balance between, as you were alluding to, what you know, what a deal would take to get through Congress, which will be critical for a deal to succeed. On the other hand, we also need a deal the Iranians can swallow, because this is a negotiation, and we do want to stop a nuclear-armed Iran. And finding that balance is a really hard job that you have to deal with every day, and I don't envy you for that, but, um, we'll, but, but I think just to avoid actions that would close the door for an opportunity to test the Iranians, I think that's the key thing. Just say one thing. So the heartburn that you hear up here is around the idea that 
that wait and see doesn't really work for us, right? Because you can't just, as some people have suggested, reimpose sanctions. It is true mm -hmm. that Congress can quickly pass sanctions. Us quickly passing legislation is not the same thing as us implementing sanctions, particularly sanctions that have global support. So that, that's yeah. the part when we have a theory. Yeah. If you didn't have sanctions in place, you could wait and see and impose sanctions, but that's not what we're talking about. And none of us up here believe that once we walk back sanctions, suspend them, not repeal them, that we will be able to easily get that back in place. Yeah. So let me actually, though, shift just a little bit. We can we can stay on your negotiate, you know, your legislation, um, but I do want to try to think through some of this, um, the balance as we put together these policies, because that's part of what you'll be trying to do too. And Jeff, you began by trying to suggest that there's, you know, how we reassure our partners, but we also have to keep in mind, you know, the the deal itself, and also keeping Iran potentially in that deal. You want to talk a little bit more about how you might strike that balance? Sure, although now that I have the mic, I'm selfish enough that I'm going to jump in on this one because uh, I've got it. Of course. Um, That's okay, I, as long as you do both. Okay, and it'll be quick, too. I actually think that uh, the critical point here was the one made by Lynn about ambiguity versus specificity. And so whether it's uh, in the uh, legislation that comes out from Congress, whether it's in U.S. declaratory policy, whether it's in our conditionality vis-a-vis -vis Egypt, these, it's this broad question about specificity versus ambiguity. The specificity has the advantage of it signals clear, hard, red lines, provides accountability. Now, the problem is uh, you often want to uh, give your policymakers a little amb ambiguity uh, for interpretation and also a way out so that we're not held to these red lines if we if we uh, get cold feet and uh, I think one of the problems here is is there does seem to be some distrust between the legislative branch and the executive branch about whether this administration has the gumption to follow through but it, it will be unique balancing act between specificity and ambiguity and 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 I would recommend framing it in that way um, on Lynn's question about how do you balance uh, sort of your, you know, you've got two audiences here. You have your important partners in the region, and they're all important, but we're, we're singling out here Israel and Saudi Arabia, and then you have uh, the audience of Iran. I think the tendency is to view the policies that you take vis-a-vis -vis those two audiences as zero-sum. Whatever you do to assuage Iran's sense of threat is going to uh, really drive your, your partners crazy. They're, they're going to think you're going to abandon them. And whatever you do to reassure your partners is going to feed Iran's sense of, of threat. And that's the problem. I'm not going to break that riddle for you, but I think <laughs> we should wrap our minds around sort of, you know, sort of getting the Goldilocks. What's the middle ground? What in some ways uh, uh, could accomplish both? So one of the big problems is that, you know, these negotiations have been P5 plus one and Iran, appropriately so, but that excludes the two partners. So Israel and, and Saudi Arabia and the other GCC states haven't had a seat at the table. And that, I think, is fed some of their concerns. So going forward, as the U.S. pursues reassurance, for instance, uh, I would definitely recommend including Saudi Arabia and Israel in those processes. So, for example, you might think that the United States would take another push for a Persian Gulf hotline for de-escalation purposes, or that maybe that bar is too high, so they'll just go for something commercial like incidents at sea, something even lower level. Okay, let's make 
sure that the Saudis are involved in that, so it doesn't look like we're doing an end around here, which we are not. We're generally concerned about Riyadh's security. Um, and so, again, the challenge will be kind of threading the needle, finding this Goldilocks middle ground between the two audiences. So, Ali, the audience will be in, in Tehran as well, and there will be a set of issues about um, being very tough, waiting, um, waiting until we see more about how it works itself, you know, works ourselves through the agreement and, and compliance, or maybe this is an historic opportunity. After all, we've been worried about a nuclear weapon and planning for that. Now we're actually talking about the days after the possibility in which that that infrastructure and prospect is significantly changed. So how, you, now you're advising U.S. policymakers, how should they balance, another balance, which is, you know, tough on Iran or potentially opening up some ways to engage? I think there is room for modest engagement with Iran. And, you know, looking at the U.S., Iran, and our partner relationship, if you want to define it as a, as a triangle, U.S. on one side, Iran, and then our partners, I don't think the relationships are so black and white that whatever we do with Iran, whether it's engaging Iran, will make the Saudis relatively or strongly nervous because the Saudis also have their own relations with Iran. They've worked with Iran in the past. And guess what? The Israelis have worked with the Islamic Republic in the past as well. I think there's a tendency to look at the last 10 uh, years or so under Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and think the relationship between these countries has been completely confrontational. And that's not necessarily the case. And I think all three countries have leaders that are nuanced and realize this. And despite the Israeli rhetoric, uh, there are those in Israel that have nuanced views toward Iran. Uh, so I, I don't think that the U.S. should put off engaging Iran on specific issues because it makes our allies nervous. I mean, if you conduct a foreign policy like that, uh, you, you will lose out on your own interest as well. Uh, I would say that a nuclear deal in itself might be historic in terms of stopping the nuclear program. I'm not so sure about a nuclear deal completely resetting U.S.-Iran relations. I think uh, uh, we have some way uh, to go uh, in terms of achieving that because essentially you still have the same political system in Iran. I think that they've agreed to negotiate with the United States because of the pressures and the uh, cost of sanctions. And so I think that there's a convergent interest there to resolve the nuclear issue. But uh, even if we don't achieve normalized relations with Iran, if we want to address some of the regional issues like Syria, I, I don't see us being able to uh, do that without talking to Iran, because Iran is the most significant actor in Syria. If you want a political solution in Syria, Iran has to be part of that solution. There has to be some middle ground. Um, and there, there are also opportunities to engage in Iran in Afghanistan, for example, as we did in the past. I think these are all theoretically possible. The politics in both countries might prevent it. Going back to your uh, question, I think a good deal would have basically components that would prevent Iran from using its capability. So let's, let's look at the um, heavy water reactor in the city of Iraq. Uh, if Iran agrees not to create a reprocessing plant for the plutonium and modifies the reactor, that 
would prevent Iran from using the reactor to produce nuclear weapons. So it's not a matter of just little cheating. Of course, of course. And you know, that's, I think that's what the P5 plus one makes, wants to make sure that a good deal means that Iraq can't be used for those purposes. And that, that's very significant. You can't just easily cheat around that. Or that Iran uh, reduces its centrifuges very significantly. Or it basically transforms the Fordo plan into a research development center. I don't think that guarantees that Iran is not going to try to cheat around the edges or there may be disagreements uh, between Iran and the P5 plus one. But I think if Iran does take certain steps in terms of Iraq, centrifuge, centrifuge reduction, addressing possible military dimensions and the ballistic missiles, and those are big ifs because negotiations are ongoing. But I, I do not think that the P5 plus one would accept a deal that would exclude those dimensions. Uh, so we're not predicting, though. So we're actually trying desperately to get beyond this deal to talk about some of the issues that are going to be on your agenda. And I think Dahlia has one. And then I am going to open it up to questions. Just a, a quick point, getting back to this discussion, which I think is, is really critical. Uh, I, I think that it is not a final deal, whatever it will be, is not a wait-and-see policy. I wasn't trying to suggest that. It's a question of testing Iran's willingness to comply with it. So the more clear we are on the repercussions of violation, hopefully the less likely we'll have to follow through with that, because that would be a strong incentive for Iran to follow through with this deal. I also think that in terms of the regional dynamic, while, the, as Jeff said, um, they are obviously not part of the P5 plus one process, and that's raising a lot of concerns, it's, it's, it's very understandable why the Saudis and Israelis and others are anxious about what's happening in that room, negotiating room. Obviously, there's ongoing consultations. I think in this case, because of the legacy of mistrust and the expectation in, in Tel Aviv, at least, that Iran is likely to cheat and, and maybe expectation among some of you in the room, uh, you know, I think in this deal, we probably will need to go beyond just relying on the IAEA for assurances or the U.S. for assurances or just in, we may want to think about establishing creative mechanisms for monitoring compliance that are unprecedented. So we may want to create a regional contact group or something. It may not have any authoritative, but it, but it would give some legitimacy. So you have the U.S. with our European allies, with the Russians, with the regional players, including the Israelis. Some of it may have to be done separately with the Israelis, depending on how willing the Israelis and Saudis are to sit in the room together. It could be done unofficially. Uh, but I think you're going to need some consultative mechanism post-deal where you are getting regular regional input on their perception of how this deal is being, how much small cheating is going on, how much is Iran accomplishing the big things, um, and a real, a real challenging dialogue. So I think that's going to have to be a big part of this agreement. So we can keep producing papers and having these discussions into uh, the coming years, but I'm not going to continue to have us monopolize the discussion except to say that I think you know, these issues are worth thinking about not only, you know, after something happens, but before it, because what we actually, that is what the U.S. says at the time of the signing and in the days that follow will be very important to setting the stage for how the choices and alternatives are, are there into the future. So let me um, open up the questions. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.